following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings, starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 709 1000. Special, and now I know that Jeffrey plays the guitar. Next Sunday, I know where you'll be. Thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> you guys did a great job. Thank you for the special. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter number one. Luke, chapter number one. We're going to start a series today about Christmas. I wonder if, for you, perhaps the Christmas story has become stale. I wonder if you hear something like, oh, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2, and you just go, oh, humdrum. Here we go again. I wonder if you've lost your wonder. I hope that as a result of our time together today and over the next several weeks, I hope that you will have a restoration of the wonder, the fact that all of history hinges on the very moment when God put on flesh and became man so that he could redeem man back to himself. A wonderful story. Before we get into the passage, I want to just give a little bit of historical background what was going on when we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1. Luke is writing this letter to a friend, I believe. His name is Theophilus. Luke is taking firsthand eyewitness accounts. He even says that in the first five verses. Eyewitness accounts as he interviewed people who lived through this. And he says, I'm going to do this my best to go right through. And the, uh, the, the different Gospels, I don't know maybe if you're not familiar with the way the Gospels work, it doesn't finish like Matthew walks through the life of Christ and then Mark picks up a different part of the life of Christ and goes and then Luke picks up a different part. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, all of them tell the same story, start with the birth, end with the death, burial, and resurrection. And it's almost like Matthew gives his account, then Mark gives his account, Luke gives his account. And it's not until you get into, into Acts that they begin to continue on the story after the resurrection. And so here Luke is giving his account, and he's just assuming that you already know what's been going on if I were to back up even further than Luke, and I think into the Old Testament, you start with uh, the people of Israel called by God in Genesis 12. Uh, Abraham, you're going to go to a place that I've not shown you. You'll find out when, I, when, you, when you get there, and I'll make of you a great people. And, and their number grows, and the people of Egypt put them into slavery under Pharaoh after Joseph's death. And then there's the Exodus. Two million of them come out, part the Red Sea, ten plagues. And out they come, and they wander for 40 years, and then they come into the land of Canaan under Joshua. Maybe in the conquest, do you remember the walls of Jericho knocked down? They have their kings. Then they fall away from God, and they fall into captivity. Babylon takes them. That's the most notable one. Babylon takes them off into captivity. And then nation after nation has them enslavement. They have not had their own 
rule under their own people. And when we come into this portion of Scripture, Luke chapter 1, it's now been about almost 700 years that they've just been enslavement after enslavement. And now at this point, a Roman government appoints Roman soldiers to collect Roman taxes from the people of Israel. And if ever there was a time in history that you just have humdrum, it's now this. We see here in the passage, uh, God has not spoken. It's been 400 years since God last spoke to the people of Israel with the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. He's spoken, and after that, there's been a silence from God. No angels have appeared. No prophecies coming from God. The people of Israel are in enslavement to Rome, sending their taxes to Roman government, and just going through the rituals of spiritual life. And that's what we see here in verse number 5. I'll just call this, maybe we're just setting the scene as I look at verses 5 to 10. Let me read for you what the scene is. Verse number 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, he's a Roman set up king, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. They both now were well stricken in years, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he came into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. I'm just going to point out a few things as I look at these verses. I'm going to point out a few things that I notice about the scene. And I think that's all this is, verses 5 to 10, is just setting the scene so that we see what a big deal this is. I notice that these, Zacharias and Elizabeth, these are good people. They're good people. They do what they're supposed to do. And you can see it in verses 5 and 6. You can see that they're good people. He's a priest after the course of Abiah. In the New Testament, A-B-I-A. In the Old Testament, spelled Abijah, A-B-I-J-A-H. You have a Hebrew spelling, Greek spelling. You see the difference between the two. But you go back to the book of First Chronicles. In First Chronicles chapter 24, it lists the different courses of the priests. These courses are named after the grandsons of Aaron. So you remember Aaron, the high priest? Then his son Eleazar, and then his grandsons. You have these grandsons. There are 24 of them. The eighth one in the list is Abijah. And then from his family lineage comes the priest after the course of Abiah in the New Testament. Here Zacharias is an old man, and he is after the course of Abiah. And here we have, he's, a, he's in the right lineage. And his wife, we also see, she is of the daughters of Aaron. She's a Levite, and you can see even in the, as the daughters of Aaron... This is a double blessing for him. Not only does he have a Levitical wife, he has a wife who is in the lineage of Aaron. This is a, a thing for him to take pride in. And boy, did they ever. Verse 6 says that they were righteous before God. They walked in his commandments and in his ordinances, and they were blameless. Very few people in the Scriptures ever get the term blameless. 
They were good people. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But then they have this problem, and you see it in verse 7, they did not have any children. You see it in verse 7, they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren. She's not been able to have a child. And now there is a problem here. They are also old and stricken in years. Now this caused me to do a bit of research in the Old Testament uh, because I thought, as I remembered back to the Old Testament and the way that the Levites and the priests were, they were only supposed to serve. They had a starting point and an ending point. And according to the book of Numbers, they're supposed to serve from the time they're 25 until they're 50. And I began to look at that and start to put an age on Zacharias and Elizabeth. And if he's only 50 years old, I'm sorry, I'm going to be 44. Only 44 on Christmas Day. Hint, hint, remember my birthday is coming soon. I'm going to be 44 and I'm not stricken in years. 50, are you kidding me? There's no way that 50 is old and stricken in years. I began to research that even further. How is it possible? That's not possible. Then I realized, Scripture is never, never contradictory. And so then I looked deeper, and I, oh wait, in Numbers it just says that it's the Levites who serve in the temple, in the synagogue. It's the Levites who serve, it's not the priests. The priests serve until they're unable to serve any longer. In other words, when they're infirmed and they cannot serve any longer. And you might remember, the high priest serves until he dies. And so it's very possible for you to have someone well beyond 50 years, and he's old and stricken in years. When I look for the phrase, old and stricken in years in Scripture, I find it three times. Abraham, 99 years old, old and stricken in years. It's the Bible's words. Joshua, at the time of his death, 110 years old, old and stricken in years. One more was David. David, in his old days, he's 70 years old. Scripture says this is uh, the end of his life. You switch over, I believe it's the end of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. And here he is. He's so old, the Bible says that they tried to cover him with many blankets and he could not warm himself. And he's old and stricken in years. At that point, he's 70 years old. I, I can just get this image in my mind when the Bible says stricken with years. You can just think of the phrase stricken. Where does it come from? It means to strike, almost as if this person has been stricken with years. Years have just beat him up. He's old, and he's stricken in years. Here's, here's, if I were to put a number on it, I'm just going to guess 80. I'm just guessing. If you're 80, brother, sister, congratulations for what God has given you. But the last thing we expect is that you're going to have a child. It just doesn't happen. And that's the issue here. This is the problem for Zacharias and Elizabeth. They're old and stricken in years, and they do not have any children. They must have given up on this a long time ago. Now we see the third one is in verses 8 and 9. I notice also that they are serving God in ministry together. Uh, you only see Zacharias here, but I believe because of what we've seen with Elizabeth and what we will see with Elizabeth, I believe she fully supports her husband in this ministry. This eighth course of Abijah, it will last for two weeks. Notice, notice in verse number nine. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. This is a very interesting custom for the Jewish people, for those priests, they were only allowed to offer the incense once in their lifetime. 
Everything that I can find in the traditions of the Jewish people, the priests, they were only able to offer that incense once in their lifetime. And, I, and I'll explain how that worked. You notice the word in verse number 9, his lot. What they would do is they would draw lots. You might say, who gets the long stick? They would draw lots in order to determine which one of the priests was going to offer the incense. Now, offering the incense happened twice in a day. It was in the morning and in the evening. And remember, he's only going to be serving for two weeks in the year. Then it's the ninth course. Then it's the tenth course. You only get two weeks out of the year that you can do this. And think of how many hundreds of priests after the order of or the course of Abiah are coming year after year. And every year you get new priests who are coming into the order. And here's poor Zacharias, perhaps 50 years he's been doing this, and only 28 guys get a chance to offer the incense. 14 days twice a day, and I can only imagine, perhaps for 50 years, and I only wonder when he goes to leave, I can only imagine, perhaps does Elizabeth say to him, Zacharias, maybe this is your year, maybe this is the time that you're going to get to offer the incense, and I can just imagine every day as they would draw the lot, I can just imagine as he would stand there, perhaps He's getting older every year, but maybe this is my year. And I can just imagine as he would stand there and wait, and they would pull it, and it's a different priest. I wonder if he was waiting to retire. This is purely speculation. I wonder if he was waiting to retire until he'd had a chance to offer the incense. Do you realize why offering the incense would be so very important? Think with me. Maybe you already are familiar with the layout of the furniture in the temple. If you're not familiar, I'll brief you. If I were to use the platform as an outline of the temple, we'll say we have the holiest of holies is back here. There's the veil. Beside the veil, you have the altar of incense. On the right-hand side, you have the table of showbread. On the left-hand side, you have the candlestick. Then you come out of the holy place, and now you're in the courtyard where you find the laver, a place for your washing your hands, and the altar where they would sacrifice. And if you are a person, just a normal person, let's say if you're a Gentile, you're allowed to come to the Temple Mount, which was about the same size as our campus here. You could come onto the Temple Mount, but you could only go into the Gentile courtyard. It was massive. That's where they did the selling, where they, remember Jesus overturned the tables? the Gentile courtyard, anybody could come in there, but then you could only be a Jewish person if you wanted to come into the Gentile or the Jewish courtyard. Then further, there was women could be in that part if you were a Jewish woman, but if you were a Jewish man, you could go further in. And then to go further in to where the altar and the labor were, you had to be a priest. And then, keep in mind, twice a day, a chosen by lot, priests could come into the holy place and offer the incense. And once a year, the high priest would enter all the way into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of the Passover at the mercy seat once a year. So twice a day, a priest chosen by lot would get the opportunity to come as close as you can get to God. 
he would offer the incense upon the altar. The altar was a cubit wide by a cubit deep. It's four square. Two cubits tall. Had four horns on it, made of wood and overlaid with gold. Inside of the altar of incense was a portion where there was a place for hot coals and his job when he would come in, he would bring the incense. It was three spices mixed with frankincense. He would bring that in. He would stir up the coals, get a flame lit, and then pour upon it those incense spices. No one else would be in there with him. It would be his first time to go in and his only time to go in, but it was a special time in his life. He would come in and he would offer this incense. God called it a sweet-smelling offering. A pillar of smoke would rise up, fill the temple, and the people on the outside would know the incense has been offered. This is the setting. Zacharias has never done this before as far as we can tell. But remember that his lot was chosen. You might remember Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So you and I might think for just a moment that it was just perhaps by chance that he was chosen to go in. No, God ordains all things even down to the pulling of straws and which name is going to be pulled for when he would go in. And Zacharias, in God's timing, walked in there as an old man. God's about to show off and show himself to be mighty. God sets this scene for him. He offers the incense. He goes in to do it. The people, by the way, verse number 10, there appeared, sorry, verse number 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So there he is. He goes inside, going to offer the incense, And there outside, I can just imagine, perhaps on their faces before God, praying while he goes inside. And now, everything changes. Let's see verse 11. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Remember, he's supposed to be the only guy in the room. Once in a lifetime, twice in a day. He goes in, he's not expecting anybody to be in here, and I don't know how this angel does it. If the angel appeared and was standing there the whole time while Zacharias is walking up, I don't know if that's how it was, because I could just imagine he ducks in, and I don't know, it's your first time to go in there. Do you, do you start looking around and see what's there? He's coming in with his incense, and then, whoop, there he is. I don't know if that's how it was. Or did the angel wait to appear until he's all the way there and he's putting the incense on and then, whoop. Either way, behold, he caught him off guard, just scared him to death. It says, fear fell upon him. Verse 13, the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. Thou shalt call his name John. Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. 
I can just imagine the things that are going through Zacharias's mind as he sees the angel and then hears the angel and understands what the angel is saying. Like, in his mind, uh, fear not. Okay, I'm the first guy in 500 years to see an angel. This is a big deal. And, and then the angel says, your prayer has been answered. Just think with me. How long has it been since he prayed that prayer? I doubt at 75 that he and Elizabeth have been praying for kids. It's been a long time since they prayed that prayer. So I can just imagine, your prayer has been answered. What prayer? You're going to have a kid. And in his mind, I can just imagine, his wheels just started spinning. They pulled my name. I've got something to tell my wife. An angel appeared to me. I got something to tell my wife. <laughs> She's going to have a baby? I really got something to tell my wife. <laughs> I can just imagine the things that are floating through his mind right now. You're going to have a child. Zechariah, your prayer has been answered and everything has changed. Now, I want to pause here because there are some terrible preachers in the world that would say... Zacharias and Elizabeth are getting ready to have a baby because they did something. Another way to say that is, if you want something from God, you need to do something for God. Another way to call that would be prosperity preaching. And, and I will push back against prosperity preaching until the day I die. So I'm going to take this moment and point out the reasons why they did not get a baby. They did not get a baby because of his righteous living. They did not get a baby because of his righteous living. You saw it in verse 6. They were both righteous. Elizabeth and Zacharias are both righteous before God, and they're walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they're blameless. That's not why God gave them a baby. No. He could have given them a baby a long time ago. It's not why he gave them a baby. It wasn't because of their righteous living. Keep in mind that a lot of unrighteous people get babies. So he's not giving the baby to the this couple because they were righteous. It's not because of their ministry service. You remember in verse 8 that he's doing this in the order of his course, and so annually he's going. Perhaps it's better for us to be thinking in terms of Luke chapter 10 and verse 17. I don't have this verse on the board, but perhaps you might remember this. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, Likewise, ye, when you've done all of these things which are commanded you, you should say, we are unprofitable servants, and we've done which was our duty to do. We don't serve God so that we can get from God. No, instead we serve God because it's the right thing to do. I love you, Lord, and I'm going to serve you. It's going to be an overflow of my love for you. That's where my service is coming from. Not my service is for you so that you'll give me things. God is not a pokey's machine. You put something in, pull the lever, and get something back. You don't manipulate God. He's almighty. Uh, by the way, they didn't get a child because of their faith either. Some people would say, well, they just prayed and they had their faith and that's why God gave them a baby. No. I'll prove it to you. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. His faith is gone. Look at verse 20. The angel speaking to him, Behold, you shall be dumb. You won't be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Why? Because thou believest not my words. They prayed. Get this. They prayed. They didn't even believe it was going to happen. 
He didn't even believe it was going to happen when an angel came from God and told him it was going to happen. So he didn't get it because of his faith. Guys, let's be careful. Don't treat God like he's some kind of slot machine. You don't get from him. He gives on his own will and his own desire. And when we receive from him, we have nothing to say, but we are unprofitable servants, Father. Thank you for your gifts. But I don't get to manipulate God. We'll come back into the story and see verse number 15. By the way, this story, this baby, is not at all about Zacharias and Elizabeth. It's not about them. You say, well, if they, if, if they had done the right things, then this story would be about them. But this whole story is not about them. This story is a lead up to Luke chapter 2, wherein we see Christ being born. And so here we're going to see why is this baby born, seeing verse 15 down to verse 17, the reason for this baby's life. And see it in verse 15. He's describing the baby that will be named John. Verse 15, And he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And of course this is prophetic and this baby John will do all of these things and it will happen over the course of the next 30 years and most likely by the time he's doing that, the prophet crying in the wilderness, baptizing Jesus, there's a really good chance that Zacharias and Elizabeth won't even be alive anymore. And here God says, I'm going to do something great with this young man. You see it in verse 15. The delight of the Lord will be on this man. God's going to do something great for him. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be set aside, no fruit of the the vine. He'll be filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb. And you might remember, and perhaps next week we'll cover it. You might remember as Elizabeth is there, six months pregnant, and in comes Mary having just conceived the Lord Jesus in her own womb, and you might remember what happened in Elizabeth's womb. As John the Baptist, the baby that hasn't been born yet, still three months away from being born, this fully undeveloped baby in her womb recognizes that the Christ has just come into the room. You remember what that baby did. We'll talk about this a lot next week. That baby leaped for joy. And the mama recognized it. That wasn't just the baby kicked. That was this baby knows that that baby's important. How would that happen? Because the Holy Spirit was in John in the womb. Those are the words that were just used in this verse. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, recognizes the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And here the Holy Spirit is already in the... the, The prophet to come who is in the womb. I can't even describe how great this is. This should be blowing your mind. Wonder of wonders that God would put on flesh, that the Holy Spirit would indwell an unborn baby. And there in the womb we have the Holy Spirit recognizing, here comes the Christ. Oh, He always, by the way, the Holy Spirit always glorifies the Son. And then in verse 16 and 17, 
He will prepare the people for the coming Messiah. I love the words here in verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. That's Elijah. And you'll see that to come in chapters to come in the book of Luke as he wears camel's hair, eats locusts and wild honey just like Elijah. And he doesn't, it doesn't bother him to go out into the wilderness and cry against the sins of the people. And he's going to turn, and I love this, turns the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the next phrase you would expect him to say, the children to the fathers, but he doesn't. He says he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. You know who the just one is, right? That's the Lord Jesus. John's going to go forth and he's going to cry. He's going to be a voice in the wilderness and he's going to draw the attention of men and women and children. He's going to draw the hearts of fathers back to their children. He's going to draw the hearts of disobedient people to the one who is just in all of his wisdom. And he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A king sends someone before him to prepare the way for him. I think right now, probably, and forgive me if I, this is my American mentality thinking, perhaps one of the... Uh, greatest VIPs on the planet right now would be the President of the United States. Could you imagine if he just hopped on Air Force One and without any forewarning just landed at Jackson's airport? Got off, no forewarning, Air Force One lands, they put the stairwell down, he stumbles down, and if you're an American you'll know why I said that, and then somebody rolls out the red carpet for him and you can just imagine, he just walks down the red carpet. Where are the peeps? Shouldn't somebody be celebrating the fact that I'm here? You follow this? So when a king is going to come, he sends people before him to prepare the way for him. We saw that in 2012 in Port Moresby. Now he is King Charles, but in 2012 he was... Prince Charles, you remember, I wonder if you remember when he came, I do, I remember when he came, uh, for about six months before he got here, traffic was horrendous, you know why, because we redid all the roads that he would be driven on, I don't know if you remember, Gordon's down to Arima, they ripped that all up, and put down a new road, repaved all of that, re-asphalted re, uh, re the whole section, and at the same time they did that side, they did it at six mile as well. If you wanted to get to the airport, it took you an hour. It didn't matter how, where you were coming from. Genius idea. Can't get to the airport. We prepared the way. They paved the road all the way out to 14 mile. You know why? Because Prince Charles was going to go to Adventure Park. They fixed the road down to Boira. He went down to the Conibata Royal Resort. How many people know what I'm talking about? Everywhere he went, they paved the road. And I remember 2012 asking, why is it we're paving the road only where he's going? And the answer was this, we don't want him to have to ride over a pothole. Yes, sir. I don't know, maybe part of it's because I'm an American. I don't understand that. But you see, when a king comes, he sends before him the forerunner to prepare the way. And by the way, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, 
for the Christ would come and he sent before him the forerunner. You might remember Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. These are the words, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We don't just patch potholes for this King of kings and Lord of lords. We make highways in the desert for him. And every valley will be exalted, and every mountain will be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And it wasn't only Isaiah chapter 40 that gave the prophecy, it was also Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1. And I don't know if this prophecy zipped through Zechariah's mind as he listened to the angel, but here it was. It's been 400 years since God spoke to his people, and now he's hearing it being spoken. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. And Zacharias gets to be that forerunner's daddy. That's pretty cool. You see, it's not about Zacharias at all. It's about the king of kings coming. And he gets to be a part of this. Now, there's a bunch of natural responses that I see in verses 18 down to verse 25. I'll just point out some of these. Zacharias has a response. The people have a response. And Elizabeth has a response. Zacharias' response is in verse 18. Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. That's Zacharias' response and its disbelief. He said, I can't believe it. I'm old, I'm stricken in years. By the way, my wife is also old. She's stricken in years. How in the world is this going to... You know, I don't want to go home and lie to her. I got a story I need to tell her. Do you have any sign? He's asking the angel. Any sign? And this angel's going to give him two signs. Here they are, verse number 19 and verse 20. Verse 19, the angel's response. I think this is a bit funny. You want a sign, Zacharias? I'll give you a sign. Here it is. Verse 19, the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. That's your sign. I stand in the presence of God, and I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show thee show these, these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. Here's your two signs. I'm Gabriel. I stand before God. I don't know what other sign you need from heaven than an angel coming down from heaven to tell you you're having a baby. And since you're having a hard time grabbing that one, just be quiet for the next nine months. You don't get to question anymore. Hush up. Stand by and stand down. Zip it. Nothing coming out of your lips for the next nine months, and we'll see how that goes. Oh, by the way, your wife's going to get pregnant along the way. Here it comes. That's your sign. The people are still waiting outside. You remember at the beginning of the story, we said the people were outside praying. Oh, they've been praying this whole time. <laughs> Poor guys. I wonder if they're starting to check their watches. Verse 21. The people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. They've been out there praying. They've been waiting for Zach to go in, do the incense, and come back out. Still waiting. Maybe there's a bit of impatience. And then he comes out, verse 22, and when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. I don't know if he had a couple of more days left of his order 
But I can't help but wonder the rest of the priests were like, man, I wish my lot had been pulled so that I could have had a chance to go in there. But Zacharias, old man, I don't know if they rigged the lot so that he could get his turn. I can just imagine they're probably patting him on the back because he can't even express. Just imagine. I've got nothing. I can't say. He's been overwhelmed. And then Elizabeth has a response, and this is verse 23. It came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And I can just imagine the story that Zacharias is taking home back to the city in the hill country of Judah. Later in the passage, we find out that's where he lives. A city in the hill country of Judah. And he's done this journey year after year for his course. And as he's going back this time, he's going back with excitement. I think there's a joy in his heart as he's headed back because I got to finally offer the incense, but better than that, I saw an angel, and he talked to me, and my wife's going to have a baby. This is amazing. And you know what? He can't tell her. Like the most exciting thing. I wonder how he did it. When he got home, She's going, what, huh? You're about to gain a lot of weight. I don't know what you're saying, honey. And I can just imagine he probably, and he starts to write it down. And I can just imagine as she's reading it, our lives are about to change a whole lot. Look, I'm 44, and I don't want to start over. They're 80. I don't think I've got the energy to keep up with a baby. I know they don't. And she's amazed. And then it says in verse number 24, after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. For all these years she's watched as other Women have been able to bear children for their husbands. And this has been a reproach that she has carried. She calls it a reproach. She's carried it for all these years. And now God is going to gift her with a child. Not through adoption, which would have been wonderful, but a child from her own womb, which she never thought was possible. And here she is in her old years. She's going to have a baby it's going to be your own baby. And oh, she's conceived and she hides it for five months. And those of you that have had babies know that that's about as long as you can hide it. Next week we'll pick up with that story and continue on. Wonder. I wonder if you've lost the wonder of Christmas. I hope that the Christmas story isn't stale for you. We haven't even made it to the birth of Christ yet. The birth of the forerunner comes first. This old lady will have a baby. 400 years of God's silence is broken. 
That's amazing. Prophecy is being fulfilled. And I think that the best wonder is anticipatory. I'll show it to you here. Zacharias has been told the forerunner is going to be born by your wife. I don't know what the forerunner looks like. I don't know what the Messiah looks like. But if the forerunner is amazing, how much more amazing must be the Messiah? Elizabeth, as she's beginning to carry, there's wonder. I'm an old woman stricken with years and I'm carrying a baby. That's wonder. What must the Messiah be like when he comes? For we are only getting a glimpse of the fact that God is becoming flesh. We're not getting the full story. We don't know the whole thing. Here, let me bring this home and just make it practical for us. Anticipatory wonder. Looking forward. That's what I mean by it's anticipation. You have wonder. You see something, but you, with anticipation, know that there's more coming. I'm going to pick the movies because I don't think any of us have ever experienced this in our lives. Can you imagine, like in the movies, it's Christmas morning, and you wake up and you come out of your bedroom, and you're just waking up. It's early in the morning, but mom and dad are already awake, and the Christmas tree is there, and I'm talking about a big Christmas tree. That's why I'm saying the movies, right? It's a big Christmas tree, and all the lights are on it. And under the Christmas tree, there are presents, and they're all wrapped, and they're just stacked. There are heaps of presents. And there's a smell in the room. Mom has been up making cinnamon buns. Koi mafu. Down here, spatna stop. Dad has been working overtime to show his love to the family. There's gifts there. And let me make it one step even better. You're the only child. All those gifts are yours. That's wonder. And it's anticipatory wonder. You know why I say it's anticipatory? Because you haven't got a clue what's in those boxes. But you know all those boxes are yours. And you know that we're going to have some kind of ritual. Maybe we're going to read Luke 2, and that's going to hold me back from opening my presents. And maybe we have to tell what we're thankful for, and it's going to hold me back from my presents. Maybe we're going to have to eat together first, and then we're going to go do this. But I can't wait to open those presents, because I don't know what's inside. Maybe there's a bicycle. Maybe there's a PlayStation. Maybe there's a puppy. Who knows what's inside those boxes? But I'm excited about it. You know, that's anticipatory wonder. And that's what we're, where we're at in Luke chapter 1. Anticipatory wonder. Can I give you a glimpse of what's in the packages? John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved us so much that he gave that which was the most precious to us. And as we come into Christmas, we just see the unfolding of the very beginning of what that might look like. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 
Can we let that blow our minds for just a moment? That Christ, as we unfold and open the boxes and let it grasp our minds, Christ was fulfilling everything that the Old Testament pointed towards as He, the Passover Lamb, sacrificed, placed on the altar. He, as the high priest, carried His own blood of the Passover, not just into the altar of incense, but all the way in past. And the book of Hebrews chapter 9 said, did not just go to the Holy of Holies, but went to the very throne room of God in heaven to offer His own blood as a sacrifice for you and I. You see, we're just getting a glimpse of what His glory is. Oh, you and I can study for the rest of our lives and we will but see just a shadow of His wonder. Oh, let Christmas stir our hearts, friends. There's so much more to come. And I hope that as we look into these passages in the weeks to come, that we will see how glorious He is. Father, thank You for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins to reconcile us back to yourself. Oh, we don't deserve that. You sent your son Christ for us. What a gift. And Lord, I pray that we would not turn away that gift. And instead that we would accept it, we would trust in him so that we may, might be made righteous. Lord, I'm so thankful that you sent a forerunner before your son, John. I'm so thankful that you gave an opportunity for this older couple. But Lord, I pray that we would not lose the wonder of your glory. I pray that through these weeks that our wonder would swell and our hearts would fall in love with you again. It's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Matt Allen of Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We would love to have you join us for service if you are in the area. If you need help with transportation, please give us a call on 709-1000. Again, it's 709-1000.